Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that your word of truth speak to us. The word that was true at the beginning, that is true now, that will be true at the end of time. The word that lives among us, full of grace and truth. Help us hear, believe, and obey. Amen. The last worship and music committee got me tickled. We were meeting by Zoom, what else is new? And the topic was fan placement during worship. And I was offering a summary of guidance that was coming on the one hand from scientists who study aerosols who say that any air movement is bad because it spreads tiny aerosols across a room, and COVID-19 researchers who say that a little air movement is good because it dissipates large droplets, the primary way the virus is spread. And right in the middle of explaining all this, I heard myself talking. Here I was, an ordained minister of the Word and Sacrament, giving a science briefing. I got tickled and started laughing, which got the members of the committee laughing. But today I can hear voices in my head asking, what's so funny? They are the voices of my seminary theology professors, Otani and Leith. First, John Leith, who was blunt. You're a Presbyterian minister, aren't you? And then John Otati, who was wordy. Were you paying attention when we taught you that the great reformers wanted to purge the faith of all superstition and that in emphasizing rationality, the Reformation opened the way for the blossoming of the sciences? And then blunt Leith again. So do your job. If there's a virus amok that targets the most vulnerable, be a good shepherd of your flock and learn your stuff. Science is the friend of Presbyterians. These voices are reminding me that Presbyterians, by tradition, are quite rational. I know that I'm talking about being rational while also speaking of hearing voices in my head, but I'm going to go with it. Now, it would be wrong for me to suggest that Presbyterians are the only friends that science has. It would be wrong for me to suggest that the Reformers were the first to say such things. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and the lot did not think that they were the first. They saw themselves as reminders, not inventors. They felt that among the peasantry, the medieval church had promoted superstition to increase the magical power of priests, and they wanted to remind Christians of the biblical witness that it's idolatry to act like gods and make up things that you want to be true. The Reformers firmly believed what St. Augustine expressed as faith-seeking understanding 
Those who worship the God of creation, the God of truth, are to seek the real, not the wistful. The wisdom literature of the Bible is particularly strong with this message, and it comes across clearly in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom literature is less, thus saith the Lord, and more, God has given us this world. What can we learn from it? The wisdom writers sought God's truth, however it is revealed, and were particularly fascinated with what could be learned from the world in which we live. A Torah scholar might be happiest sitting inside somewhere poring over a scroll by candlelight. A wisdom scholar might be happiest being outside and looking up from the scroll to take in the world around her. Why? Because wisdom comes when faith studies the world. Wisdom comes when faith studies the world. Hey, maybe instead of me talking so much about wisdom, I ought to let wisdom introduce herself as she does in our passage. So, wisdom, tell us about yourself. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts, long ago. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. The voice of wisdom, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, wisdom. Good to get to know you. I have to say, we have a connection, you and I. You speak to the philosophy major that I once was. And you know, I think that others have that connection too. Like the ones who love to look into a telescope and the ones who love to look into a microscope or who are fascinated by rock formations and delighted when fossils are found with their clues about what once was, or who study the migration of birds, or who love to figure out new recipes that are delicious and healthy, or who wonder how fermentation works and why spirits have different flavors depending on how they are brewed, or who spend hours studying the weather or who marvel at artificial intelligence and who worry where that might lead, or who love having their minds blown by whatever physicists have to say and then enjoy science fiction that puts their visions into stories, or who... I'll stop, I'll stop. 
What I am saying, wisdom, is that even though many don't know your name, there are millions who are about what you are about. I'm speaking of all those who want to look around, to see, to touch, to taste, to study, and discover what the world is about, the inner workings of things. Well, I was hearing voices in my head, and now I'm talking to a passage like it's a person. The nice thing about masks and an empty sanctuary is I don't have to see your look of concern. My hearing voices aside, I do want to point out that the passage does speak as a person. And she has a name. Wisdom. Sophia. Sophia is a wise woman. Maybe a grandmother who's seen it all and learned a lot. She has been around a long time, she tells us. She once was, she tells us, the truth before reality, theory before practice, what is to be before it becomes. What I mean by that is that she tells us that all truth about how the world works was in place before the world came to be. Truth was true even before there was anyone to ask Pilate's question, what is true? Before I get too philosophical, I will ground what I am saying in in some of the images that Sophia uses. She told us that before springs burst forth, the truth that water will always find the lowest point was already in place. Before mountains were brought forth, Before there were ever Blue Ridge Mountains to hug us or the Himalayas to intimidate us or the massive and isolated stratovolcanic mountains on the Cascade Volcanic Arc to inspire us as they solitarily point to the heavens, the truth about how they came to be by the earth upheavals or volcanic explosions was already in place. Before there were groves of olive trees or fields of grain, the truth about what we call biology was already in place. In other words, the amazing rationality of God's creation was in place before there ever were humans who could reason. The wonders of how nature works was in place before there were ever humans to learn it. I can put it negatively, too. Before there ever was the ability to lie, there was truth. Before there ever was the ability or the practices of spinning and cherry-picking facts, there was truth. Before there ever was a desire to ignore what is real because it doesn't suit one's purposes or agenda, the true was true. Now, the wisdom writers themselves didn't know all that is true. I mean, sure, they thought the world was flat. Big deal. Everybody did. They didn't think about things like aerosols or how stars implode or cancers grow. But please, don't sound both arrogant and naive and put down what they thought they knew. They were as excellent students of the world as there ever has been. In the context of their times, what they knew and understood about how the world works, 
puts most generations to shame. And why were they so devoted to studying the world around them? The answer might surprise those who think that religion and superstition are the same word. They were such outstanding students of the real because they passionately believed in a creator. They saw the study of creation as a means of praise. They saw the study of creation as a means of praising God. It is no leap to say that if they had been introduced to modern science, they would have seen scientific study as a way to give praise to God. In that sense, they are so far ahead of many today who live in the Western world. Since the Enlightenment, many have developed this idea, this unbiblical idea, that faith and science do not belong in the same room. That idea is played out in one of two ways. First, there is this notion that science and faith can coexist, but need to stay out of each other's way. Faith begins where science ends. Science is about what can be proven, and faith is about what we have to trust to be true. And the more that science proves, the less faith has to tell us. The more territory that is claimed by science, the less there is to believe. As knowledge grows, God shrinks. And for the wisdom writers, (laughs) that's nonsense. Faith doesn't begin when knowing ends, not a true and living faith anyway. Faith is a trust that then fuels the knowing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. What is meant by that is that faith in God is the lens by which we understand what we know and what we don't know. The wisdom writers study the change of seasons the migration of birds, the habits of ants, and the movements of rivers making their way to the sea, and they learn lessons that help them live both with more realism and with greater awe of God's handiwork. The second notion goes even further. It is the idea that faith and science represent two worldviews that are opposed against each other. To be on the scientific side of the divide is to see believers as truth deniers. You believe the book of Genesis? Well, just wait a minute, and I'll Google all kinds of things about fossils and black holes and evidence of evolution that will blow your faith out of the water that you thought could cover the whole earth. And then on the other side of the divide, with their fist up, believers are the God defenders who take offense at any explanation that doesn't square up with any surface reading of Scripture. So, disagreements about six days of creation, sexual orientation, or miracles become win-at-all-cost arguments where God's very existence is at stake. And Grandmother Sophia... She just rolls her eyes at both groups and sighs. It tests her patience so much because she knows that neither side gets it. 
in saying that truth was with God before the world was made. Sophia is telling us that we will never be gods. We will never know the whole truth. And the best we can hope for is to be wise. Wisdom is to have a heart of faith that loves God and loves God's world and a mind that knows how to learn a thing or two. Maybe it would be helpful at this time to listen to voices that are not in my head or not in the head of the writer of Proverbs speaking for Sophia. Recently, Cynthia Lawrence sent me a link to a conversation between a Christian theologian who loves science and a scientist who is a devout Christian. And both are powerhouses in their fields. N.T. Wright is one of the most celebrated biblical scholars of our day, and Francis Collins is one of the most celebrated scientists of our day. Dr. Collins, the director of the National Institute of Health, is the, is the geneticist who led the Human Genome Project, who helped discover genes connected to a variety of diseases. I mean, his work saved a lot of people's lives. I'll include a link to their conversation in the text of my sermon. The two were talking about what the voices in my head were talking about at the beginning of my sermon. In the face of the pandemic, Christians who are interested in justice and compassion, as they should be, need to learn first what the scientists are saying. Because if the goal is to serve the greater good with particular concern for those who are most vulnerable, the elderly, the poor, then we need to listen to the science. We need to learn the real. As Wright puts it, theology needs to learn a second language. In order to be fluent in modern compassion, we need to be fluent in science. We need to speak in fluent science. And Collins agreed. And by the way, it is wonderful for me, a person of faith, to listen to such a brilliant scientist speak so passionately and warmly about his faith. The two of them even conclude their conversation singing a song about Genesis, which they wrote. It's delightful if you want to watch it. I agree with Wright and Collins. I don't think that preachers or politicians or media personalities on TV or radio should be the first voices we listen to when it comes to something like a virus, or the climate, or sexual orientation, or whether God will let the virtuous as well as the sinful be harmed by a hurricane. I'll tell you why, and I'll limit it to preachers, even though a version of what I'm saying is true for all non-scientists. Preachers who skip over the study of what is real in the world are nearly always going to end up preaching a wannabe gospel rather than a how-it-is gospel. To preach a how-it-is gospel, I need to let science speak for itself. Because something like a virus is neutral and doesn't care a bit about how persuasive I am in my sermon. If the virus were sitting out here in this sanctuary, I'm not going to convince it of anything. This virus doesn't care a bit about what I want, doesn't care a bit whether we are religious or not, or whether we are Presbyterian or Buddhist, or whether Republican or Democrat. Before I can begin to think and talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ during a pandemic, 
I need to get to know this virus on its own terms. And then we can start thinking about it and maybe be wise about what we should do to balance protecting lives and livelihoods, how to promote mental and emotional well-being while observing restrictions, how to educate children, and how to continue to be the church. Climate science doesn't care about what preachers want to be true. Nor Republicans, nor Democrats. Climate doesn't care, it just does. It just happens. And if there are cycles of weather that have nothing to do with anything that we can do, that's good to find out. And if it does matter somewhat what we do, that there is an impact on the climate because of emissions, then that's good to find out too, whether or not we want it to be true. Whether or not it serves our personal or business or political preferences. Let's learn. Then let's worry about policy and what we should do to be good and compassionate Christians in the world. And we can just keep doing this. We can just keep marching down a list of ethical issues pertaining to the natural world around us. And over and over again, the point is, is that people of faith, in order to glorify the Creator, should praise God by learning what we need to learn of creation. Let's learn what the science is about what we should eat and what happens to us when we inhale certain substances, what we genetically engineer and what we grow, how the ways we discover to extend life impact the quality of life. That's the guidance of the wisdom writers. They help us understand that heaven and earth should never be separated. To put that into today's terms, and using the words of the great rabbi Jonathan Sachs, religion and science ought to be this great partnership. When faith learns how to speak the language of science, faith becomes the worldview, and science becomes the tool. The end is a greater wisdom about living as God's children in God's real world. So let's learn. And by doing so, let's praise God. Second Presbyterian Finding direction by following Jesus.